0: Hey guys, it's Dawn, and I wanted to let you know about a new space I'm creating called What's the Truth Community. If you experience trauma in childhood, the truth can be really elusive. In toxic families, the truth of what goes on behind closed doors is hidden. And I speak to people every day who are only just now beginning to discover the truth of who they really are years later because we were given so many false beliefs about ourselves. Nobody loves you. You should be ashamed. You'll never amount to anything. All the lies are manipulation within toxic family homes. But each belief that gets filed away in your subconscious mind is so powerful. Each belief changes every choice you make, and that can change the entire direction of your life. If you are ready to create a beautiful life for yourself, Come and join me in the What's the Truth community. By sharing truth, we are learning to step out of the fog and see what is the truth of your life so far. Because once you can see it, you can fix it. We are going to be talking about truth so that you can finally live in peace, freedom and authenticity. In the What's the Truth membership, you will have access to subscriber-only episodes. All ad free and all for the cost of a cup of coffee a month. This is the most important community you will become a part of this year. If you listen via the Apple Podcasts app, you can sign up right there in the app. And if you listen on any other platform, you can sign up via Supercast. It's super easy and the links are in the show notes. This is your safe space. I'm so excited for you to join me.
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: The way that I did that was thinking in terms of opposites. If I'm showing criticism to myself, then I'm not showing myself respect. If I'm being judgmental, I'm not showing understanding. If I'm sitting in the past, I'm not sitting in the future. If I'm punishing myself, I'm not showing forgiveness. Part of the trends that I was seeing working as a mediator is that we could learn from what's happening as well as what's not happening. Whether it's self-criticism or someone complaining that they're constantly being criticised, well, what's missing is respect. So it's a call for respect.
0: and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey my beautiful friends, welcome back. You know my mum had been in hospital for many weeks and she was at one of her lowest points when she said to me, I want to cry, but I can't. She was so done, but she was just unable to release a single tear. Have you ever experienced this yourself and wondered, why can't I cry? Releasing emotion is so important for our healing, and so it's good to understand why this happens. My blog post this week is called Eight Reasons You Can't Cry, Unraveling the Mystery Behind Our Tears. The link to this blog is in the show notes. Did your parents get divorced? It's a harrowing time for kids. The two most important people in a child's world are angry and fighting, and it can have a lifelong effect on a child. Sometimes that child will feel so much shame and blame for their parents' divorce because they felt so powerless in that situation. My guest this week is Rosemary Gattuso, a mediator in the family court. Rosemary sits down with families to help them find a way to navigate raising their kids together after divorce. Rosemary has been a quiet observer of family dynamics over many years, and she's noticed the trauma that lies beneath the surface, driving our behaviours in stressful situations. Rosemary has a simple yet powerful idea. We need to look at what's wrong versus what's strong a perspective that can truly change how we see the world. This simple principle immediately changes our experience as we move from feeling threatened to feeling safe. Rosemary Gattuso, welcome to the podcast. You work as a family mediator in the family court and it has been by observing the dynamics of families that you've learned about the hidden traumas people hold on to. You advocate for all of us to be trauma informed and to work with the principles of what's wrong versus what's strong and we'll talk about that in a minute. In your book, It's Not You, It's Me, you explain how reframing our personal narrative from vulnerability to strength is the key to overcoming adversity.
1: Can you explain
0: what it is that you do in your work as a family mediator?
1: Thanks, Dawn. Well, it's important to have this conversation. As a family mediator, my role is to sit with separating parents and facilitate the conversation that they have around their roles and responsibilities now that they are separated. And vital to my role is this idea of me being independent. So that involves not taking sides, not giving an opinion, basically, and not showing judgment. And so this point of not showing judgment was quite key to having a successful conversation, a successful mediation, because If you think back to a time you've felt judged by someone, it's really hard to work with them. So that's where this concept of non-judgment and its impact really framed the way that I work and my ideas on how to live in a trauma-informed way.
0: And the rates of divorce are so high now, like 50% or something its crazy. Do you think it's the actual divorce and separation or is it the conflict between parents that's damaging for children?
1: It, it's definitely the conflict. It's not the, the the separation. I think historically society felt that staying together was better for the kids and then once that narrative changed, the the rates of separation and divorce also changed to reflect that. And there's loads of, of research on the the impact of unresolved parental conflict. Now we know conflict is a normal part of day-to-day life. It's really when it's ongoing and unresolved and could even flow over into a type of emotional abuse. And and if you look at it from family dynamics, you have a child with two parents or two caregivers, or maybe there's more than two, but those significant adults are the are role models for them. They're the most important adults in their life. So for there to be disharmony in, in that interaction can be quite harmful for them. Most of us will know someone who their parents didn't separate, but they had a really terrible relationship. And this child grew up into an adult knowing that both their parents really hate each other. And you can see the challenges that can present. Parental distress is recognised as a condition in the DSM-5, which is the annual that lists all the the mental health conditions. And it's it's set up by the Psychiatric Association of America. Now, I guess part of my work is also not to label and diagnose. But at the same time, here, it's really important to note that it's actually been recognised that it, it is harmful.
0: Yes, absolutely. And you speak about the importance of discovering the hidden traumas that people are holding on to. What have you discovered about those hidden traumas when you're working with families?
1: What I found is that it's less about a traumatic event or a series of events and more about the impact on that individual and and the impact on that individual's quarterly of life and the way that they see themselves, their sense of self. And what I concluded was that trauma, it looks like a deficit of self, where an individual will see themselves through the lens of a lacking or a deficit or I'm not enough, that, that kind of narrative. And it doesn't have to be a result of a major incident or, or what we would traditionally recognise and understand to be trauma. It's not to be dismissive of those other types of trauma. What I found was it's very complex and it's very individual. And so that means that the cause is also complex and also individual. And then the healing process is similar. And it was really obvious for me working with families where there there was more than one child and one child was thriving through the changes yet another was really not managing and their parents might say, my daughter or my son has a behavioural issue. And so this common thread of a behavioural issue became a clue to that child's experience. That was part of the reframe that it's not about a specific event, it's about the impact on the individual. It doesn't have to be obvious And and what clues can that child's experience give us? And with my study on trauma, one of the things that really jumped out for me is that we are adaptations of our experience. So the quality of our thoughts, feelings and actions are really a reflection of the quality of our experience.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And I I think it's so true, isn't it? In those situations, parents are not aware that, the behavioural issues are a reaction to what's going on in the family because one child is coping and seemingly fine. The other child is then just the person who's causing trouble, just not having that understanding that that child is coming from a place of trauma and just their reaction to it. Can you give us some examples of those hidden traumas that you've seen in families?
1: Yeah, and I guess I should also note that, where there are these vast differences with children of the same family. What was coming up repeatedly in mediations is that this theme of having a child who was more sensitive than the others, more aware, and it really started to get me thinking about myself, and how I respond and react to to situations, and also my childhood experience, and start to look more into, well, what does a sensitive child need? And I guess the conclusion was that I would categorise myself as being in that category or label, being a highly sensitive person. So I guess that helped me to then identify it. When my clients were presenting and, and giving examples of maybe their child processes outside stimulus very deeply, mm-hmm. which can be good and bad. It has both elements. So sometimes it can make life a little bit more challenging. Sometimes it can make it empowering. So it's not all bad. But for adults, it's probably one of the most challenging times of their life to, to go through separation and all the changes and re-establishing their roles and responsibilities and even just looking at the financial impact there's so many adjustments to make and that's as an adult so for children then the the onus is on the adult to cope with all of that and then be able to differentiate one child from another and what they need And if one child might need more reassurance or one child is more sensitive, therefore they might take on the worries of their parents. So, yep, mum and dad will then need to maybe be really wary of their language and what they say, particularly what they say in front of the kids. When you have this sensitive child, then I know from my own experience, I had a pretty good upbringing. I didn't have a lot of worries that a lot of other people have my parents migrants they were always working. They did have probably what I would say is a quite a strong negative bias, which was normal because that's just how it was and I lived in a an area with lots of other children of migrants, so we just knew oh yeah that's that's normal, but as a sensitive child i I guess looking back now, I can see that. I really took on a lot more of what was happening around me and, and then add that layer of a strong negative bias, kind of anticipating the worst might happen. You better be careful. Watch out. Then coming into the situation as someone who was quite shy, I was placed in ESL as a child. I didn't really know why. I am born in Australia. My mother was an ESL teacher it was, I suspect I wasn't reading or learning to read as quickly as everyone else. So they put me in ESL class with everyone else who didn't speak English. And so I guess along the way, I picked up this narrative that I was different and it wasn't good. So I can see now looking back, it's not anything major. Like I'm sitting here telling little stories about my childhood and how that impacted me personally and got me on the, I guess, the path of deficit in the way that I saw myself as nothing major and I'm no way being dismissive or or anything of, of other people's experience. This is mine and this is what I noticed. And then I saw it in my clients' families and thought, actually, this can have quite a significant impact on one's quality of life where the sense of self is in deficit as a starting point. And when it starts from a young age and continues, it can be really hard to even identify and then do something about it. And I guess I was lucky because I was studying in the area of mental health. So then that helped me to identify and then look at, okay, well, how can I change that narrative?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess that's where this what's wrong and what's strong comes in. Is that yeah. is that where it came yeah. from so you you grew up in an environment where everything was coming from the negative and So a lot of people are focusing on what's wrong in a situation. What could
1: go wrong? (laughs) So you've got to be careful. You're going on holidays. I remember my first trip overseas and discussing it with another, a friend of mine whose parents are also from the same part of Italy And he said to me, gee, don't you wish when we went away our parents would just say, have a great time, not all (laughs) these warnings, (laughs) you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, but if it's really sort of deeply entrenched that everything is negative and especially when it's not just you and your family, it's everyone that's around you, it really becomes totally your narrative, doesn't it? It's, It's hard to kind of break out of that, I guess, even when you look at it and say it's crazy the way they speak, it does kind of seep in and become a part of who you are, and that's where that sensitivity probably yeah. comes in as
1: well, isn't it and And I think yeah, because of my sensitivity, it was a lot heavier for me, mm. so I wouldn't say it was abusive or, or but it was just and it was a bit inconsistent as well, because in some areas you know I found gee, I'm so lucky my parents were so supportive of me, but then there was this little bit of be careful, be aware don't yeah. trust anyone there's underlying and and look biologically that's our default. that's how humans survived. We had to be paranoid. We had to have this strong negative bias just in case something was going to happen that would threaten our survival. but I guess what what I found that in terms of managing day-to-day challenges that there were generally two categories, for all our thoughts, feelings, and actions. And I say two categories, but essentially it's two options. So that our thoughts, feelings, and actions could come under the heading of what's wrong or what's strong. And what I saw in myself and even my clients is that when we are faced with a challenge, then if we take the path of what's wrong, as we walk down that path, we receive more evidence of what's wrong in that situation. And just generally, Uh, and it's gathering more evidence to support the narrative. And the same with the what's strong. If we look at the what's strong and take down the what's strong path, then we receive more evidence of our strength and the good in that situation. Or if you made a mistake, well, there's a learning in that situation. And it's challenging because it's not about staying on what's strong all the time. It's more about the awareness. I was going down the what's wrong path and it started to derail me because it was stopping me from moving forward. It was stopping me from applying for that job. It was stopping me from going out because there was always a reason. There was always a valid reason to back up why I shouldn't or I couldn't or I can't. And it would be either something that could come under, I'm not enough or a situation is not good enough, there was always some kind of deficit, whether or not it was direct or or implied. And when I looked at those who really overcame massive hurdles and and major um, challenges, which could come under abuse or trauma, I found that while there were definitely reasons for them to go on the what's wrong path, there was something in them that kept them on the what strong path or redirected them on that what strong path so that they became more resilient each time that they redirected.
0: It is always interesting to see those people that have the worst kind of things happen in their lives and yet somehow they're able to stay positive and go down that strong Mm. path. How do you see that playing out when you're working with families And you've got two parents often who are in conflict and they're probably just wanting to constantly talk about what's wrong with the other parent. How does that play out with trying to get them to look at what's strong instead of what's wrong?
1: Well, I think the main thing is for me is to use that, Category of what's wrong and what's strong in the way that I work. And so I take you back to the notion that mediators do not judge. I mean, people judge because we're all human. But, you know, in my role, the idea is to move away from judgment and closer to understanding. So that's how I visualize that in my head. The closer we are to understanding, the closer we are to what's strong. When you have someone who's vulnerable or still really grieving the separation because there's so much to to balance at that moment. Trauma-informed is really showing understanding, showing respect, acknowledging where they're at and working with that. And if that means not going ahead until certain steps have been taken or when it starts to look like things are going to be not a straightforward because one or both party is still really focused on what's wrong. They're in that judgment mode, the criticism mode, and also in the past. One way that can help get out of that is to really focus on the child and the needs of the child. And, and that's where both parents are generally able to focus on their children and what do their children need? How can they work together? Do
0: you think most parents are putting their children first in your experience of it?
1: I think so. Yeah. I, think I... They
0: probably do want to put their children first, but there's also all of this anger and fear and judgment going on with a partner. Mm. It's getting them to actually focus on the the children. It must be very hard to do that at times.
1: It can be. I look at it that everyone that comes into the room is doing you know, the the best that they can at that moment. And it's about how can everyone work together? Separation is a tough process and it's asking parents to really manage and balance and juggle and, you know, process a lot in a short period of time where you have a relationship that might've been several years or or decades. You have children together, you have so many memories and, and history. I think just acknowledging that And really trying to focus on what's strong, which sometimes just looks like not highlighting what's wrong. Mm. And for many, it can be the first time that they sit in a room with someone where no one's highlighting, focusing on and and talking about endlessly all the negative things about that situation.
0: Mm. Yeah, it must be quite a relief for them to actually go Mm. through that process.
1: It can. Yeah. And I think also, just going back to the way that my career started as a mediator, I, I wanted to be a mediator for so long. It was just my dream career and I just couldn't get there. And I know I wasn't ready, but I persisted and, and persisted until I got a job and it was in an organisation which was incredibly strengths-based and they really supported everyone for where their strengths were, gave them work that actually supported that, gave them opportunities that would help them grow. And it was through that process that I really, I guess, grew as a person professionally and personally, because I was being shown evidence of my skills and evidence that I was a good mediator and that I was good at my job and people trusted me and they were wanting to work with me. That's the environment that I worked in, which is quite rare, I think, or can be, was rare in my career. So, to be in that situation, to see the impact on myself, it really helped me support the strengths based approach with clients because I felt it and I saw the impact it had in me personally. So, it just made sense to then apply that. Mm.
0: How were you able to release? Self judgment in your own life?
1: Well, I think forgiveness is big here. We all judge ourselves. I can be quite forgiving of myself and try to focus on the strength because it's so easy to go into judgment and really focus on what I did wrong. I should have done it this way. I can't believe I said that, or I can't believe, you know, that sort of thing when it's about myself. But if I move away from that criticism, then how can I show respect to myself? How can I show understanding? What are the benefits of what I might call a mistake or whatever has led me to judge and, and criticise myself? How can I flip that into a learning opportunity? Because when I don't, I realise it was a missed learning opportunity. And I guess the way that I did that was thinking in terms of opposites. If I'm showing criticism to myself, then I'm not showing myself respect. If I'm being judgmental, I'm not showing understanding. If I'm sitting in the past, I'm not sitting in the future. If I'm punishing myself, I'm not showing forgiveness. Part of the trends that I was seeing working as a mediator is that we could learn from what's happening as well as what's not happening. Whether it's self-criticism or someone complaining that they're constantly being criticised, well, what's missing is respect. So it's a call for respect. And even just thinking it, thinking about a situation in terms of opposites, what's happening and what's not happening, that can help kind of break the overthinking self-criticism cycle to then, okay, how else can I reframe what's happening and start to go on the what's strong path?
0: So when parents come to you for mediation, I guess that they're often fighting. It's about winning a fight, isn't it, for a lot of people. That's quite a destructive place for little kids to be, isn't it, to be in the middle of a fight all the time.
1: I guess if we go back to the idea that all our thoughts, feelings and actions can be categorised as what's wrong or what's strong, then for a child in, in a family that's going through separation, it can be helpful to look at, the quality of the interactions between all the parents. If you imagine a family as a triangle pointed down, then you have, say, the significant adults, parents, caregivers at the top and the children at the bottom. So all the sides of the triangle join and impact another. If this triangle is fragmented, then that's gonna impact the quality of these sides. So what's the quality of each side? is it leaning towards what's strong or what's wrong because there's always going to be an impact on the child whether or not it is i guess good or bad particularly when you look at separated parents criticism is quite a big big topic that comes up so for example if one parent is is highly critical of another then the child might then move closer to the parent being criticized, or it could actually move closer to the parent criticizing and and sort of take sides. And that's how I I visualize all sides of the triangle impacting each other. Mm -hmm. So I guess working with separated parents, it's about how can the impact on the child be as smooth as possible or just supported because every child is different and will need a different process. So it's about sitting alongside parents to really look at the characteristics of their individual child, how they respond, what they like, anything that could give an idea of, of them as a person, and then flip that against, well, if that's what they like, what might they need from mum and dad at this point, and how are they managing with the separation? You said that they're sensitive. You said that they're having social anxiety. What's a parent's contribution or how can they hold and support their child? Everyone comes into the situation with their own experience. You know, if we go back to the fact that our thoughts, feelings and actions are really a reflection of our experience, our behaviour has been adapted to match our experience. You've got parents who are bringing that history with them as well and being asked to really focus on their child at a time where there's so much uncertainty and and there's so much else to be processed and managed and thought about that maybe they didn't have to think about in the past. So it's a a real hard ask. Absolutely. And
0: what what do you think a child is learning when they're watching their parents fighting? They're really learning how to survive in the world, aren't they? Mm. And that's a very deeply held part of who you are, I think, that will affect that child forever. And I think parents really need to be aware of when they're fighting, what they're saying and how that's going to affect a child.
1: Yes. And and I think historically, society has been quite adversarial. If I look at the family court history in Australia, we went from having to prove fault to be able to get a divorce to not having to prove fault, you know, no fault divorce, but you still had to go to court and there was no way to enforce child support. So then on one hand, you had a lot of parents who weren't seeing their child because of the conflict and they couldn't afford to go to court and that was really the only option. And therefore, I'm not paying child support because I'm not seeing my child. So it was me against you for a long time. And now the introduction of mediation before court as a compulsory part uh, has really tried to start afresh in terms of putting the onus on the parents because they're experts in their child. They're the best people to manage and support their child. I think a lot of people, it's a surprise that it's not adversarial where I don't have to give evidence. It's just about working together together with a very strong future focus and best interests of the child. Parents who are going through separation now, whose parents have separated in the past, their experience is quite different to how they experienced growing up and being a child of separation.
0: Mm, It's interesting. I hadn't understood that divorce can now be. Is it always a no-fault divorce?
1: Yes, Mm -hmm. since
0: 1975. Oh, wow. So... That's that's very interesting to me actually. So you don't have to go in and try and prove that you're the better parent and and all of that sort of stuff. That's a huge relief on the whole process, isn't it?
1: Yes, it's about working together and saying, well, how can we define our roles and responsibilities and do it ourselves because it's our family, it's our situation we know what's going to work best or at least try. And if it doesn't, we look at another option.
0: You said earlier that we should all be trauma-informed. Can you explain your understanding of what trauma-informed is?
1: Yeah. And, look, I'll start by saying, you know, as a a mediator and and counsellor, you know, everyone was really pushing this idea of being trauma-informed. That means working in a way that acknowledges, supports and respects the individual's experience and history and and how that has impacted them. That's what it means for me. And, And for me, if I look at it in terms of what's wrong and what's strong, it's more about doing things that my thoughts, feelings and actions are really under what's strong in my interactions with an individual. The vital role of a mediator is to show non-judgment because that's also a part of being trauma-informed. Working in a trauma-informed way, it it occurred to me, well, then why can't we be trauma-informed with ourselves? It's vital and helps our own healing process if we can be trauma-informed with ourselves. And now when there is significant trauma, that can be a challenge because the default is on what's wrong all the thoughts, feelings, actions, situations really highlighted what's wrong in a situation. So flipping that can be challenging. But if we have other supports, other people in place who are working in a trauma-informed way, that can can be pivotal to helping us to be trauma-informed with ourselves. And that's where I look at the use of opposites, what's happening versus what's not happening or the opposite. Of of what's happening as a way to think, okay, am I going towards what's strong or what's wrong? And if I'm not, how can I flip that? What would be the opposite? What would I be doing if I was being trauma informed with myself?
0: Mm. And I guess when people come from trauma, they end up with quite a low sense of self worth. How do you see? low self-worth getting passed down in families
1: mm. yeah and yeah that's really important to also acknowledge that yes we are adaptations of our experience but we're also adaptations of our ancestors experience and our family history you know and there's a lot of research on intergenerational trauma and a lot of the research that I've looked at explores the descendants of holocaust survivors and, and how biologically they are responding to stress in a similar way that someone would who had lived through the Holocaust. And and for me, that was quite, that was huge because then it, it's like, okay, well, I might be responding to external stimulus as though I have experienced a traumatic event, but I haven't, but it's somewhere biologically and still with me. So I think really important to acknowledge the impact of intergenerational trauma so there's a lot of I call it deficit of self I'm not good enough and that that's how I really see trauma that low self-esteem which can be direct or indirect it can be implied where I'm not even going to try because deep down I don't believe I'm good enough or if we look at it in terms of thoughts feelings and actions then maybe one or two of those believe that we can do it but then the other one is inconsistent so we might think yep I'm going to apply for that job we might apply for the job sit the interview but actually we don't believe we're going to get it anyway we feel that we're not as qualified as everyone else and that belief really comes through and you know maybe we don't we don't get the job because if we don't believe in ourselves who will if our thoughts feel and actions weren't consistently under the same umbrella, then that's where we could have repeat challenges and that would be a clue as to the way we view ourselves.
0: Yeah. I've spoken to lots of people here on the podcast who grew up in families where the parents divorced and they feel so much guilt because of what goes on during that separation time do you see that in your work, kids feeling the guilt of their parents' divorce?
1: I should note that I never meet with the children. I only meet with the parents and, and go by their, their experience. But it's definitely a common thread and it can be developmental depending on the age. There might be certain developmental stages where it's more common for a child to really take it on and believe that, that it was their fault because they did something and and really maintain that narrative. I left my bike outside and then that's when mum and dad had a big fight and so that's why, Mm. you know, so it it can be. And, again, that's where it's really important to really focus on the, the needs of the child and that specific child. What is that individual child like and then how can the parents work together in ways that come under the umbrella of what's strong for their child. And it's not just about what they do for their child, but also what they do for each other, so that they do show more mutual respect and non-judgment towards each other in in front of their children.
0: Yeah, because they take it all on, don't they, and just hold it. I think a lot of people just hold stuff from their parents' divorce for many, many years. And there's no way to really speak about it, I guess, because the parents are biting and who do you speak to about how you mm. feel? It's a probably quite an isolating situation. What would you say to a parent who is currently in that divorce and separation process and they're feeling really challenged by that?
1: Well, I think the first step is to really just acknowledge that it is challenging and that it might actually get harder or more challenging before it actually gets smoother but at the end what I guess the question could be what memories do you want your child to have of this time and that can really help focus on the best needs of of the child which I believe parents do come in wanting to do the best I guess I say the spotlight on the child but it's also the family as a whole because everything that Everyone in that triangle does, is going to impact everyone in that family so that the spotlight is then on the needs of the family as a whole. Going through separation can really highlight the conflict of interest between my needs to do something versus the needs of the the family. And that can be quite challenging because you're going through separation and you have to do things on your own and think about how am I going to manage my responsibilities how am I going to manage the bills and work and soccer and whatever the case may be now as an individual yet still be respectful of the family so that can be a common challenge
0: Hmm. it's a big learning curve isn't it yes I know you've got a book coming out soon called it's not you it's me and you also run workshops. Can
1: you tell us about your
0: book and and what you offer?
1: Okay, thank you. My book really looks at a lot of the the topics that we've explored today, how trends in managing adversity and ways to overcome and flip from that what's wrong lens to what's strong lens because I've found that if we are able to flip or to recognize that we're on what's wrong and go to what's strong, that increases our resilience and our self-worth, and we're able to learn and grow from our experiences. And so as part of my publishing process, I met with a, a publisher who said that her teenage daughter, who's quite anxious, really benefited from the ideas in my book. And, and the tool that I, I you know proposing a, a physical tool, to categorise thoughts, feelings and actions under what's wrong or what's strong. And so because her teenager really benefited from this tool, she planted the seed for me to run workshops in high schools. So that's what I'm offering at the moment. I've already been running trauma-informed mediation workshops, largely to mental health professionals, and now that's expanding out to high school students their parents and teachers it's so
0: valuable what you're doing working with high school kids I always think so much of this stuff we learn so much later in life that we should actually be going into schools and teaching it to the kids so that they've got some idea that they've got control over some of these things when I was at school gosh there was nothing like that and so It's just giving them an awareness of different levels of how to see things, I suppose, and I think it's really, really valuable. So where's the best place that we
1: can find you? Well, on social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Uh my website as well. And my book should be launching by September this year.
0: I'll put all of the links to Rosemary's offerings to her book when it comes out in the show notes so that you can go and check those out. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us today, Rosemary. Trauma isn't just the big and obvious things that happen. It is all the small things and your ideas around what's wrong, what's wrong is very valuable. And I think it's going to be important for a lot of people. I can see how much it's working in the families that you work with. So thank you so much for sharing everything with us today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a
0: pleasure. Thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at my big love project and please